This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code KEYGREE, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Part to some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all its potentials. To name today's Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st of 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf is a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup already announced and the rest of the lineup to be announced soon, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catscoff.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early bird registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Prague Dave Thomas and Sasha Yurch. Visit www.elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze.com, to keep updated for more information and register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th to the 30th of 2017. The UnConf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The call for talks is now open and closes on January 8th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The factory includes Tutorials Day on March 25th and training on the 20th to the 22nd and 27th to the 30th of March. To submit your talks and keep updated with information, visit www.erlang-factory.com sfbay2017. The Flatmap Oslo call for presentations is now open. FlatMap Oslo is an FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 
www.flatmap.no slash CFP to learn more. Announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at FlatmapOslo. Almirab will be taking place on the 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Adam Zipuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. The CFP is open until the 15th of January, and they already have 32 awesome proposals submitted, so make sure to get yours in. Early bird tickets are currently available, but there is no telling how long they will last. For more information and register, and submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Leonard Fridian. Leonard, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Certainly. My name is Leonard Fridian. I'm a software developer living and working in Stockholm, Sweden, for a consultancy called Agical. I believe I'm a, I'm a bit of an atypical guest in that I'm probably less of a hardcore functional programming geek, but rather tend to, for various reasons, fall onto and into the softer side of developing things. I'm the benevolent dictator until further notice for the Stockholm Elixir Meetup Group, which I've shamelessly used as a vessel to propel me into functional programming in general. Unlike several of your previous guests, I do enjoy dynamic programming languages. I'm an avid mob programmer, and last year I went on a journeyman tour, and this year I've been barred from giving any technical talks whatsoever by being drafted as the conference here, or Masters of Ceremonies, over and over again. And I believe that's a pretty good summary of who I am and what I'm doing. So I first came across you on Twitter, and then we got to talk a little bit at the Elixir Conf US 2015. And you mentioned you were doing a journeyman tour, and I figured it was time to check in, see how it was going, and just dig deeper on some of those topics we got into. So I guess just as a refresher, what was your story of getting into software and how you found Elixir? Well, going all the way back, I started hacking on back in the days on my Amiga. And since I did some assembly, I come from a background where I, I once upon a time looked at C and perceived this as a high la- level language rather than a low level language. Like pretty much everyone sees at it these days. Eventually, I got into university. I did take a couple of courses in Java. Never, ever actually worked with Java professionally sort of segued into dynamic programming languages, first Perl, then Ruby, which was pretty much those two languages were was the first language I used to do something professional programming-wise. And a couple of years ago, back in, oh, I think a bit more than three years ago, I realized that while I had been watching the development of Elixir, I still had, hadn't gotten into it. So I decided to light a bit of a fire under my feet by kicking off an Elixir meetup group here in Stockholm. Because if you're showing up to give a talk, well, you better know at least something about what you're talking about. So I, you sort of, that kind of forced me into start using it and digging into it. So tricking myself into it, really. And the first thing I noticed about Elixir was really that 
I had previously watched, uh, you know, done li- very little bit of Erlang, never really, as so many other ex-Rubists, never really liked the syntax of it. That kind of stopped me from going very far in Erlang itself back in the days. Uh, there was something about it that I liked, and that was actually uh, the prologue heritage. I had done a little bit of AI back in the university, just a course. It was different enough, prologue that is, and that different enough feeling, I recognized that again in Erlang. So I guess that it was a long time coming that I would eventually sort of end up on the beam one way or the other. And it just happened that Elixir was kind of the perfect marriage of the things I liked from Ruby uh, and the things I liked from Erlang. And that holds true today. So that's pretty much the story, I think, when it comes to programming and, and me. And you mentioned some Erlang and taking a look at it. And being in Stockholm, there's a big Erlang cohort over there with Ericsson and their labs out there. But did you get a first exposure to Elixir through the Ruby side and the Ruby background and seeing the Ruby people talk about Elixir? Or was that knowing about the Erlang over there and then saying, hey, here's Elixir, which also runs here, which kind of caught your attention? Well, here's the thing. Things get even weirder. It's also even weirder when it comes to me actually getting into the Ruby side of things. So I think that up until 2010 or 2011, I was completely oblivious that there were pretty much other software developers working and sharing things and meeting up. I was completely oblivious to that fact. I had basically been doing... I had been doing software development, but I had all been through my own consultancy or always been doing things solo. So working with others and exploring with others, that was a new thing for me up until five, six years ago. So I had only seen a little bit here and there about Erlang, but I hadn't engaged with the Erlang community. So the way I got into Elixir was that I was you know, tracking the activities of Jose Valim since he was well-known within the Ruby community. And back four or five years ago, I started getting a little bit restless when it comes to the Ruby side of things. It was something was amiss to me. It was this nagging feeling that while Ruby was great and Rails was really useful, there was a few things that kept on starting to become a little bit of a bother. Performance was one thing. There is much to be said about performance on, on the Ruby side of things, but it's not one of the swiftest languages. At least when you're starting to see that the free lunch is over uh, in the sense that we don't get these faster and faster single core machines any longer. Instead, we're scaling out in a number of cores. So having a language that can handle concurrency and parallelism was getting increasingly more important to me. And it was, you know, it was a fact, it was a larger and larger blip on my radar, so to speak. And with the underlying virtual machine, Erlang virtual machine Beam, Elixir kind of held this promise that it would retain a lot of the things that I loved about Ruby, while at the same time fixing a number of things that I felt was weaker points when it comes to Ruby. And and, uh, I think that holds true. Okay. And yeah, it was one of those things, just the mere exposure of that side of Erlang, because I know in our little mini interview at Lone Star, you also talked about the fact that you were able to get some of the Erlang people showing up and giving you some more in-depth stuff. So I didn't know how much of that played into the excitement about something that's on the beam and on the VM, or if it was more 
the benefits of Elixir without even realizing the benefits of the bean. Ah, right. So back at ElixirConf when we spoke last time, uh, the uh, people showing up for the Stockholm Elixir meetup, especially I was excited about getting a, a number of Erlangers showing up. And the thing, the thing back then, which I still feel was exciting about that, is that it was a general enthusiasm around Elixir as a language, no matter whether you came from the Ruby or Python side of things, or if you were an Erlang old-timer. And I like that because I always love when you see these communities that actually have people not being... Coming all everyone coming from the same sides, you know, from the same having the same perspective. So, I was enthusiastic about seeing this heterogeneous community coming together, and I think it has been uh, calmed down a lot over the last years, and it's hardly a thing these days. But in the early days of Elixir, there was plenty of this feeling that Elixir was this upstart thing, and there was a bit of a snobbery, I'd say, coming from pretty much both sides, to be honest. There was people coming new to Elixir, for example, from the Ruby side that didn't really realize that it was more than just the Ruby syntax running on a different VM. It was a new way of thinking. The syntax might be deceptively similar to Ruby, but the semantics, it's, it's all Erlang, really. And not realizing that, they were probably pretty swift in discounting the know-how and the knowledge of the Erlangers. And at the same time, there was people that had sort of grown so so used to the syntax and the many quirks of Erlang that they couldn't possibly fathom why there was this need for an, another language on the beam, really. And I don't see much about that, of that these days. I'd say that people are sort of on board with that. We have these languages on the beam, and the more the merrier, and we can coexist and learn and share and grow in conjunction and together. So that is probably what... I back then was most enthusiastic about and still am. And then you get in, you start seeing and understanding the language and the semantics. Because if you're coming from Ruby and you're seeing Jose stuff and you're understanding the speed and concurrency, there is still that mindset shift, as you mentioned, of grasping the semantics and knowing that it's different. What was that? For you, because I know at that ElixirConf as well, you also gave a talk where you started jumping into the underlying Beam intermediate language and starting to dig out and explore that and understand. So what made that transition of going from, this seems nice, it gets me speed and concurrency, to knowing that, wow, there's a lot here of the semantics that I really want to dig into, and as much as going and understanding even the intermediate language that it uses. Right. So I think it holds true that, that with everything else, the more you practice something, the more you work with something, the more you realize that there's always another level underneath. There's always more depth to whatever you're doing. And there's an intrinsic fun to just delving deeper. So it kind of came naturally. Once I had sort of committed one way or the other to, to actually learning more about Elixir, not just tinkering it with a doing a few exercises and then leaving it at that, but rather actually, no, I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to make this the language of the year. As you might recall, the programmatic programmer had this good advice of learn a new programming language every year. And as I said, I was on the lookout for something that could sort of not only be of 
let's say, academic interest to me, but rather actually professional interest to me that could sort of replace or complement Ruby. And it was just fun. It was an easy transition for me to, to start doing Elixir, partly due to the syntax, but it also there was this enthusiasm among the first of us that joined the meetup. It was just fun digging up something new, something that the rest of the people in the meetup had yet to find out about and sort of show and tell and, and talk about. And when it comes to going as far as diving into the underlying you know, bytecode representation in intermediate language, I have this tendency that every few years I get this idea that, oh, I should really hack together a virtual machine and I should also hack together um, some assembly programming language for it. So the idea is always to have sort of a, a virtual machine running some sort of assembly programming uh, language, making it basically rekindling this little interest that, like I said, back in the days, I started out on Amiga, I did some assembly programming on it. I love that. I still think that it's a, it's a fantastic pastime. It's fun. It's just very impractical to dig up the Amiga, and, and it's even more fun to construct and sort of think out this little tiny machine that can be sort of artificially limited in what it can do, and then that imposes some sort of challenge to make it do things. And from that, reading up on ARM instruction sets and reading up on MIPS and reading up on all of these physical processes and CPUs, I kind of stumbled across the fact that you could decompile Beam files. And Erlang Sen had sort of done their little bit of investigation of, I think it was Erlang R17 instruction set, so it wasn't quite, quite up to spec. But that was just fun to sort of start digging into a little bit. And then I realized that, well, this could actually turn into an interesting talk. At least the summit would be interesting. So I kind of submitted that idea to Elixicon. Didn't expect it to be accepted, and it, it was. So then I, like I said earlier, starting a meetup group and making myself diving into various things to talk about, that works just as well for submitting a conference talk. Because then you realize, oh, rats, I really need to find out more about this so I can actually give, an, give a half-decent talk about it. So as you start digging in, and and you mentioned your Elixir group in Stockholm and the Mixer there, were you taking advantage and taking anything out from that Elixir and Erlang community that was assembling that you had in there? Were you able to tap any of that knowledge and help jumpstart your learning between the fact of having that larger network of people familiar with the Erlang machine and language and infrastructure so nearby in the community? Well, one would have thought so, but the thing is that I was doing this over summer, and if there's the one thing that holds true for Sweden, is that it, in summertime, the entire country shuts down, and everyone goes away on vacation. So meetups basically happen until around midsummer, and then they kick off again in August or September. Did get a few, you know, shares on the local Slack channel, and some cheering me on. But apart from that, I just went out and did research on my own and, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. A fun thing, though, is that the recording of my talk at Lexicomp, Bjorn Gustafsson, who is the B in Beam, the Beam stands for Bogdan slash Bjorn, Erlang Abstract Machine, and uh, Bjorn has been working on this for 
I don't know, 20 years or close to 20 years at least. He saw my presentation and basically what happened after that is that I got called up to the principal because he wanted to uh, talk about a few things that I had mentioned. And the interesting thing about that is that we basically found a bug in the disassembly of beam files in Erlang R18. It was a you know trivial bug, had absolutely no consequence really, but it did explain one instruction when I, I was looking at the and talking about a instruction listing in my talk, and I said I have no idea what this thing is doing here because basically it was a no op instruction, and was a kind of bizarre one. I think it was about jumping to another place in the code if false is false. It's what like. It was just a weird instruction in all the, in the first place. It, it, I think it was, actually it wasn't a no-op. It was this uh, always jump. It might as well have just been a always jump, but instead it was actually checking things before jumping. And the thing it, that it checked was always true. So it couldn't be anything but true. And what this turned out to be was, in fact, that the um, compiler and the disassembler it optimized this to be the exact same opcode and optimize this to be an actual jump without doing anything, any checks at all. But the disassembler didn't quite understand that, and it just took basically the first thing out of two that turned into the to this opcode, and the first thing that turned into this would be unless false jump. So uh, that was a fun thing, and, and we spent this morning basically talking about the history of the beam, and that was a lot of fun. So it's one of those things that kind of happened after I had given the talk, and uh, it was this really nice moment of just sitting down with someone, some of the people at the on the Beam team, on the Erlang virtual machine team, and talking and learning about a little bit about the history and, and and a bit about the internals. That was a lot of fun. That seems like some nice serendipitous to come out of the event of having that talk and getting someone who's familiar with it to actually give you feedback and help explain some better details. Indeed, indeed. And you mentioned the talk. You talked about your Elixir group in Stockholm of helping to essentially hold you accountable for learning this because you've had to teach it. How many other people were there and interested in the beginning? Was this something that you were pretty much putting something and finding something new to explain every single month or whatever your frequency was? And how long before it took other people to come up and start stepping forward and say, oh, I've got something I've played with and I want to present as well? Well, as I recall it, I think that basically the latter happened more or less from the start. I mean, initially I might have given a a few presentations, but I was never alone about giving presentation. We had quite a few Rubists, mostly, that got on board from the get-go. But it wasn't like, as I've heard from a lot of other people organizing these Elixir meetup groups, that it was like a 95% Rubist, and then you had the odd Pythonist, and maybe one Erlanger. We actually had a good mix pretty much from the start. I mean, the bulk of people, the initial bulk of people, came from the Ruby side one way or the other. But today we have something like well over 400 people, and, and uh, it's really becoming a really good mix of people where, where they're coming from and what they're doing. So we've had all kinds of people doing presentations pretty much from the start. 
One thing that we have been able to do since we are located in Stockholm is that we've been able to have people like, you know, Joe Armstrong and Robert Verdon giving presentations. And that's a fantastic thing. And that's a real boon to be able to have. But most of the content is really as generated one way or the other from people with coming into the Lexi community and not necessarily being old time Erlangers. But you had a pretty good community there at the beginning and it wasn't something that took a while to get set up and marketed where you're like, okay, because I'm one of the few people here and everybody else is still getting their feet wet, I've got to provide the content before someone else steps up. But that didn't take too long to happen. Then You took off pretty quickly. Yes, yes. And I think that there are a number of factors that attributed to that. And, and one was that we had an active, I think we still do, an active Ruby community. I'm not much part of it these days, but there was this active Ruby community. There was a number of us, especially the ones that turned out to be the core in the Elixir Meetup group. We knew each other. I had sort of already talked a little about it for a few months about starting an Elixir Meetup group, checking the interest, realizing that time was time was ripe for it because it wasn't only me that in the Ruby community, not just in Stockholm, but I think also worldwide, that was starting to look around. And to me, what I noticed is that the Ruby diaspora basically took one of pretty much four or five routes. Either people stuck with Ruby and pretty much ignored everything else, or they got into one of the languages of Go, Elixir, Rust, or Clojure and especially the latitude to a smaller extent. So I think that there's a lot of ex-Rubists in the Lexa community worldwide and in the Golang community. And uh, I find that really interesting because those two languages, Go and Elixir, are so different when it comes to mindsets and the general philosophy behind them. So that's honestly, when it comes to Go, the less said, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But it intrigues me that people actually went for it rather than, than diving into something else. But anyway, the main point is that I think that a lot of people were already looking one way or the other for the next thing, so to speak. And we just managed to capitalize on that by striking at an opportune moment, so to speak. And it was getting back to the forcing yourself to learn. So you were able to take advantage of other people employing that same trick and getting up and speaking, and you're learning from others instead of just being resorted to, now I've got to teach everybody because I am the only one at this point who's volunteered to get up and give something. Absolutely. I mean, and the part about being, if you end up in such a situation, it's so draining because it's taxing enough just to find venues and topics and organizing a meetup in the first place and, you know, sponsors for lunch or dinner and, and drinks and stuff like that, that is taxing enough. If you also have to provide all the content, then it becomes a bit of a heroic effort just to get things going in the first place and then being able to do them on, on some sort of schedule becomes tantamount to, uh, well, I don't know, being much more than its titanic effort. So the key is really, really to get people involved early and also making it adamantly clear that you don't have to be a Joe Armstrong, you don't have to be a Robert Verding in order to talk about something at the meetup. If you figured out a nifty way of using 
enum.map, or for that matter, you just stumbled across the enum module in, in Elixir, and you're coming from a language that doesn't quite have those constructs, then that's fine. That's absolutely fine to talk for five or 10 or 15 minutes about, because there are going to be other people at the same level that are going to be interested in that. Now, if you always only have extreme entry-level talk, well, you might actually have to start a meetup doing the basics and growing and building on top of that from and going from there. And that's kind of fine as well. Might not be of real interest if you're one of the more seasoned developers, but it kind of takes patience when it comes to building a community around a new language and especially a community that where people feel that it's absolutely fine to talk about things without being a veritable guru. And it's the community building and that perspective that I'm trying to dig into because you talked about that. You went on your journeyman tour. You've also talked about how you did have done mob programming as part of your journeyman tour. And so I want to establish the user group side first in your perspective there so we can compare and see how it relates to this journeyman tour and going off and saying, I'll go work for you. Come in, bring me in. I'll expose you to some elixir. I'm going to help build this community and we're going to do this together in mob programming. So let's give a rundown of what your journeyman tour looked like and some of those lessons and examples you found from that of how you helped build the community and helped expose and reinforce your learning. Absolutely. So about a year and a half ago, I'd say, or even a little bit more than that, I was at back then at, uh, at a place where I had realized that it was time to leave for various reasons. And in doing so, I realized that I promised myself that even before that when I left, for whatever reason I left, I would take some time off from working and I would go on a journeyman tour. And for those that don't quite know what the journeyman tour is, it's basically visiting a new company, a new team, working with them for a few days or a week or for whatever length of time. But, but in my case, I said, I'll come and work with you for a couple of days, typically for three or four days. I'll take Fridays off. I will blog about my experience. And the fact that I get to write about my experience working with, with you and your team, that is what I'm going to accept as payment. I'm not going to charge for my time. And this is a very liberating thing to do because it means that I got to go and visit teams and work with projects and technologies, problem domains and technologies and programming languages that I wasn't proficient in. So if it sounds like being a consultant, the difference is that as a consultant, you have to be a, a pro. That is usually the notion of a consultant. You hire a consultant because they know more than you do. I got to end up in situations where I know a lot less than any team or member I worked with. And I learned from that. I learned a lot from that. And I, I got to try out a lot of different technologies. And, and uh, I got to see a lot of different problem domains. And I got to work with a lot of different team constellations, so to speak. And writing about that was really good from sort of personal PR perspective, but mostly it was just fun. I thought that I did this journeyman tour for, let's say that, to extent of 85 to 90 percent, I just did it for fun because I needed the break. I needed to go out in the world and see something else than what I had been doing for a number of years. And the added bonus on top of that was, of course, that it would, you know, would give me some visibility 
and wouldn't probably hurt my chances of finding a fun place to work at. Might have been one place I visited or somewhere else, something else. That was at least the idea from the start. So um, I wrote a little blog post about this, announced it on Twitter, and a few weeks later I had a little lightning talk at an Agile conference here in Sweden about it, and the reception was beyond imagination. It took just a few weeks from the very first blog post for me to basically fill up at least you know, more than half of the slots. So the idea was each week I would visit a place, I would give them three to four days, I would take one day off per week to write about it and, and recuperate. I would give myself an extended summer break, and then I would continue for a few months in fall. And the reception was fantastic. I had to extend the journeyman tour by another month, and basically, and even then, that required me to, to bring out the shoehorn to squeeze in as many interested teams and companies in the month of November. So that was a really hectic month. But it was, it was a lot of fun. It was absolutely fantastic. A bit draining in the sense that, you know, initially, at least initially, it was a bit draining in the sense that every week you get exposed for a completely different team, company, problem domain, usually switching, you know, technologies quite heavily. It could be uh, like Python the one day, Clojure the next, bouncing between, you know, things. And then also, you know, writing, hopefully, interesting things about each and every visit didn't quite get there when it comes to writing about all the visits uh, there are still a few that are on my to-do list which is probably not going to happen at all but nevertheless most i'd say were you know with the exception for a few stops i wrote about all the teams i visited i wrote about the conferences and, and talks i gave during the tour and it was absolutely fantastic because it also validated my notion and my idea that Maybe, just maybe, it was time to go back into consulting again. I'd done so for a number of years, since 2005 up until 2011, 2012, and had kind of burned out on that. So that was why I was working for a product company up until the start of the German tour. And I just wanted to find out, this is part of the extra 10% above just having fun idea behind the German tour, was also finding out, am I cut out to go back into consulting again and sort of jumping about between various places? And that's a kind of fun notion. As a, on a side note, the idea that as a consultant, you'll be uh, jumping around a lot. You'll be constantly switching places and teams and never really sticking around and seeing things through, so to speak. That notion is, quite honestly, it's, it's, it's false. Because once I was done with the tour, I joined a consultancy here in, in Stockholm, Agicore. And a month later, I started my current gig at a national broadcasting company, a TV broadcasting company, TV4. And have been, you know, being embedded in a team there and working with them ever since doing Elixir. And combining that with my other passion, mob programming. So getting back to your question about how this relates to mob programming is that backing up again, about a couple of years ago, about the same time as I had started the Stockholm Elixir meetup group and we got that rolling, I saw a talk about mob programming. And I also got to go, you know, a couple of months later, got to go to another talk, which was held by Woody Sewell, sort of the father of mob programming and a good friend of mine these days. And 
that was intriguing. So we gave that a try at the product company I was working at, and I really loved it. I really, really loved it. And, and the idea behind mob programming is basically, I usually describe it as pair programming on steroids. So instead of having two people, a pair, working on the same thing at the same computer, you have the entire team. There's much more to it than that, but it's, it's at least the basic idea behind it. And we tried this. I think it was on the second or maybe third meetup that we organized. We tried this as part of the Stockholm Elixir meetup group. We split the meetup into two separate mobs. We had people coming that knew very little about Elixir. A few Erlangers, number of Rubies, some people doing .NET or Java. And then I gave each mob the task of sit down here in front of this computer, which might have been completely unfamiliar. Some people, not all developers, contrary to, to popular belief, are working on uh, Macs. So there was a number of people that you know, showed up coming there from their Windows background and trying to figure out, just figure out how does this keyboard thing work. And they got to do this task of building a key value store, pretty much. And then they, they had to do it as a mob. They had to do it test-driven, and they were to present it at the end of the meetup. And, and both groups solved the problem. And the fantastic thing about it was how effortlessly people, not knowing each other, just got dug in and started learning, exploring, and sharing. And at that point, I realized that this mob programming thing, is there's really something to it. And this came back during my journeyman tour especially the latter half of my journeyman tour, but also from the get-go, a number of teams. I said that it doesn't make sense for me to go just coming for a few days to work on, uh, on something and doing that solo or occasionally supervised or something like that. It, it has to be at least pair programming to make sense. And mob programming, I'm more than happy to show you that if you want to experience it. And an increasing number of journeyman stops, tour gigs, as I like to call them, showed interest in actually mob programming. And they said, well, you know, please, please come and facilitate mob programming sessions, especially the latter half of, of the tour. I bounced between being a part of a mob and showing people how to mob program that way, or just simply just facilitating a mob, uh, trying at least not to, to go too far into the technical discussions, but more like facilitating the team in working as a mob. And it was extraordinary to see how much people learned and shared once they started working as a mob, as opposed to very occasionally pair programming or most of the time just flying solo and maybe perhaps having a code review after the fact, a week after people wrote some code, really not gaining much from it. And instead they got this continuous code reviewing and sharing and discussion all of things bundled into one thing so it was fantastic seeing and partaking in more programming sessions with so many different teams and seeing how they actually learned a lot from it and you mentioned previously i don't know if it was the blog post or your appearance on the elixir fountain or your appearance here but you were talking about how that was also helping some of the interest and exposure to elixir in some of these groups, because you would do like a mob programming session over lunch or something if the group wasn't using Elixir and kind of getting some exposure there as well. Am I calling right? No, absolutely. You're quite correct. So it wasn't, you know, 
unusual that the last day of my stop at a team would be, you know, us switching from what they've been working on to us doing a mob programming session in Elixir. So I did get to show Elixir at a, at a number of places. Honestly, uh, usually I got to just show people how to do mob programming, but at a few places I also got to introduce Elixir, and in general people liked it. And it has been, a, we've been using it ever since at the uh, Elixir meetup groups, and these days, especially during the hack nights where we don't have a speaker's program, but rather you know, people get to show up and they get to code on whatever the product they have or join one if they don't, there's almost always at least one mob spontaneously pulling together and, and working on something. So there's usually always at least someone who says, well, I've got this thing that I'm working on and uh, we could definitely do it as a mob and all four, five, six people go and work on it. So you found for anybody in a user group or going to one or leading one or just even trying a brown bag at lunch that wants to maybe expose people to a concept, whether it's Elixir or whatever their favorite language is, that this mob programming session is something that you would recommend as just an experiment to run and say, hey, we're going to do this. We're all going to sit around the table. We're all going to sit around the projector or whatever it is. Try this out and see if we can't solve these problems as a group then. Absolutely. I see it as a, as one of the premier ways of learning these days because it's interactive, you see. And, and especially if, if you know such session, if you say that, well, you know, you know, people aren't going to be get stuck in the driver's seat for the typical 10 to 15 minutes. Let's do this. Like we'll switch every four or five minutes. Then you'll have a lot of people that actually get a chance of touching the keyboard and participating actively because that's the way, you know, usually people are unaccustomed to mob programming or pair programming. They think that it's it's only when you're typing code that you're actively participating, which is utter nonsense, to be frank. And you also, at the same time, you get people accustomed to having this ongoing discussion about the code and what's the next step or next steps are going to be. And by just getting people engaged, just by getting people to do something it sparks some sort of interest that I don't, haven't seen in, in people that are just listening to a talk. Talk can be very inspirational. Talks can be really, really great. But it doesn't necessarily mean that people pull up a laptop the first thing they do when they come home two or three hours later after having a few beers with the, you know, the people at the meetup group and starting hacking. Some do. Absolutely, some do. And they do get inspired by a talk. But having people there and then instead being actively partaking that usually as far as i'm concerned that usually gets them it increases the chance of them getting really interested and starting learning and i've also seen this when you not only do it over a lunch or for a few hours during a hack night i've seen the effects of mob programming continuously as a team day in day out week in week out because Shortly after joining the team at TV4, we managed to get Woody Sewell, who happened to be in Stockholm at the time, to do a workshop. We organized a workshop for the team and for other teams at TV4. And from that little embryo, from that workshop, we got a dedicated mob programming station set up. We got people starting into mob programming. And we used that, me and a colleague of mine, Yuan Lind, we used that, who happens to be the co-founder of the Stockholm Elixir Meetup. I'm not going to take all credit for it because he's my co-conspirator. We used at least the mob programming format 
as a Trojan horse of getting people at TV4 and in our infrastructure team, getting them to know Elixir. Because up until that, that point, it had only been really been him and I that knew Elixir and had worked with Elixir. But by simply being acting more like super navigators, we got the team accustomed to the syntax and the semantics and we started you know, building systems in it. And I've seen how it has sort of grown. So I guess that to this day, we're, we're still the Elixir team at TV4. But mob programming as a technique has sort of taken off because now we have uh, four or five mob stations set up and they're in frequent use. So other teams have sort of, you know, taken mob programming to heart and it has become as natural as a format to work in as you will see pair programming at other places. So that has been really fantastic to see what what happens not only when you do mob programming for, for a short while as an introduction to a thing, but when you do it continuously, it's been really, really good to, you know, be able to come back after a vacation or just for a few days and realize, you know what, this thing that we worked on, the rest of the team has been continue working on it. And it doesn't have to be always be me or you one, the other Elixir hardcore fan. It doesn't have to be one of us that drives it in order for it to get done. So that has been really, really amazing to see how swiftly people have sort of gotten into Elixir through mob programming. And it's that community building aspect and the knowledge sharing that made it sound interesting where it lowers that barrier to participation. So if someone feels like they don't have enough, there is someone else there who can help guide them or a number of people can help guide them or just even passively if they're not the driver at that point, have someone pipe up and say, say some tip and then everybody is able to share in it. And that seemed like something that's very valuable, at least in the small scale, if nothing else, to help build that community and build that knowledge around some of these topics, whatever they may be. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that, I think that's what's one of the things that makes it so endearing to me, the truly community building aspect of it, because just as the more you work with something, the more you dig into something, the more interesting it usually becomes, the more you uncover the true depth of something. The same holds true with people. The more you work with people, the closer you work with people, usually, very often, the more interesting they become. And whatever potential conflicts and feelings and qualms you may have about each other, you resolve them. You resolve them quickly. If you have a software developer team and you put it together and you have people working solo on things all the time, you can get away for years with people more or less acting passive-aggressively towards one another, making snarky comments in the odd code review comment, and people generally you know, shrug it off or, or sort of endure it. But if you try to do that, if you happen to have such a situation in a mob programming session, you're going to have endless conflicts and everything gets pulled to the front, while at the same time you, you can't help but realize that you are engaging with living, breathing, bleeding people and not just some semi-anonymous avatar on the other side of the web, which is all too easy a trap to fall into. If you just get stuck to asynchronous communication channels like, you know, Slack or code review comments on GitHub and the source. But when you actually have someone next to you, you know, people tend to shape up in, in the way they behave. And if you have something that's unresolved, well, 
you better get it resolved quickly. And that is also a thing that I see happening all the time. So basically, mob programming has not just been a fantastic learning tool, it has also been an absolutely phenomenal team building tool. People either you know, like each other more by working together, or they realize that they really don't fit together at all and they're not compatible. And well, that's a, I'd rather have that experience sooner than later. So it's a good thing either way in my book. And those sound like some great insights and just things for people to remember in general about working and the soft skill side, as you mentioned. Yeah, seems to be a constant red thread in my life, no matter how much I love tinkering with little virtual machines or building the odd Erlang cluster out of Raspberry Pis on the side. When it comes to the professional side of things, it seems as if I always fall into the softer and softer side of things. I try to be a geek, but I seem to be failing miserably at it. <laughs> and we're getting close to our times, and we didn't actually get to dig in to some of that dynamic versus static and what you thought about it. So we'll probably have to save that for another episode, considering you probably got to at least be exposed to it via your journeyman tour and get some different opinions. But you also mentioned, and this should be relatively quick, so I want to kind of sneak it in now because We've had some people come on and talk about Elixir and the appeal to Elixir about not being fond of the Erlang syntax and Elixir appealed to them much more. And knowing that Elixir does have its niceties of things like protocols and some of the macros that you can't do in Erlang. But now that you've done it for a while, and I'm sure you've had to go in and dig back in through Erlang syntax from using another library or figuring out what something else is doing on the core infrastructure. Absolutely. Have you personally changed your view on Erlang syntax? Is it something you've grown to like or appreciate? Or is it still something that it's something that's not quite for me? You can see where it's for people. But has that changed over the years of getting more familiar with the semantics of the language and then seeing the difference in the syntax? Oh, I can definitely see. And I've always been able to see how the Erlang syntax can be something for others, even if it's not for me, you know beauty lies in the eye of, of the beholder and all that. Personally, I still consider Erlang mostly read-only. I'd have no problems passing it. As part of the, my journeyman tour, I did get to go to Klarna, which is heavily using Erlang, and I was facilitating a mob programming session for a few couple of days with an Erlang team. That was a lot of fun, I might add. But I'm not reaching after Erlang when I need to do something on the beam. It's definitely Elixir all the way. Now, Sometimes, like you said, you have to dig into an internals. Occasionally, you have to learn and read some Erlang source code, and I, I have no problems in doing that. But I'm not really into writing Erlang so much. Not by choice, at least. And that's perfectly acceptable. And it was just because sometimes it's the right tool from the job, as you mentioned, that you've noticed the Erlang and Elixir and just the whole Beam environment, that ecosystem, is becoming more mixed and used together and not just i've got erlang well there's some elixir out there that's nice but nope i'm still doing erlang and vice versa so i didn't know how much you found the right tool for the right job wound up being erlang or if elixir is still pretty much giving everything you need and erlang is just the better understanding of what's going on under the covers sometimes absolutely i mean it has been one of the many strengths of the 
Java virtual machine and its wider ecosystem that people have been able to use things written in, in other languages. So it would be just sheer insanity if we weren't doing the exact same thing on the Beam. I would love to see better integration of, of uh, LFE, Lisp flavored Erlang, being able to compile such modules just as easily as you can compile Erlang when compiling your Elixir project. And I would love to see it becoming easier for building your Erlang project and sort of, you know, linking in and using Elixir. And, because that's still, a, it's, it still holds true to me, at least, that it's, it's much easier using Erlang from Elixir than vice versa. So that I think that's a thing that needs to be addressed. And the sooner, the better, for sure. So we're close to time, but is there anything we haven't made mention to that you that we would be remiss if we didn't at least let the audience know about? Like you said, we're not probably not going to dive into dynamic versus static a lot. So we'll save that. We'll save that for another time. I'd say we probably covered most of the bases. There are a couple of things, as in a few tips, I'd say. And one would be to take a look at mob programming one way or the other. Mobprogramming.org is a great resource to start with. There's also a mob programming conference coming up the second. There was the first one we had this year in Boston. Second is going to be in Boston too. It's going to be in April 6th and 7th, I believe. It's just after Agile Games, which is organized by Agile New England. And Elixir, of course. If you haven't looked into Elixir, so please do, because it's, it's, it's a fun language. And so your journeyman tour is over, but are there any other places you might be appearing? You mentioned the mob programming conference. So if someone goes there, are they likely to find you? Are there any other conferences coming up that you've either pitched or accepted to, or at least planning to attend in the future for people to run into you? Oh, yes. If you want to read more about my journeyman tour, uh, that's on my blog, codecoupled.org. There's a link to the journeyman tour, so codecoupled.org slash journeyman dash tour. That is a sort of a page where all the various gigs are listed with links to the, my various blog posts about them. I didn't get to talk this year at the Elixir and Erlang conferences I tried to submit talks to, but I was rather sort of shanghaied into becoming the Masters of Ceremonies, which was a lot of fun, by the way. But I'm going to show up definitely at the Mob Programming Conference next year was a facilitator this year will reprise that role next year looking forward to it it was a great fun to actually facilitate a mob doing elixir this year so apart from the many mobs doing things in java and c sharp there was you know a few mobs that actually stood out in doing something else and so hopefully going to do a lot more of functional mob programming really so i'm going to try to make that happen Apart from that, I know that there's an Elixir conference taking place in Barcelona sometime during spring. It hasn't been announced quite yet, but it should be you know, probably April, May. So I'm very likely to show up there. And then we have the uh, ElixirConf in Bellevue next year in the fall, which I'm also looking forward to. I haven't yet made it to the West Coast, so it's going to be a nice opportunity for me to go further west than ever before. And I would guess you'll probably be around the Erlang User Conference, if nothing else, because you're in Stockholm, where it's usually located. Highly likely. Highly likely, yes. (laughs) 
So for anybody going there, they can find you. So you mentioned your code coupled site. Is there any other places for people to follow along and keep up to date with your progress and your interest as we go along? Sure. I'm on Twitter using the nick of Devil CSC. So that's D E V L C S C. And that nick acts as a warning for not being careful when you pick your nicknames because they stick for a long time and they make absolutely no sense to people. But it used to be the abbreviation of the consultancy I, I formed and flew solo as for close to 10 years. And that's just what came to mind when I registered my Twitter account back in the day. So that's a good thing. So I'd say that between the blog, which I, I'm not very active right now, but I have got a couple of things coming, and Twitter, those are probably two best places to follow and see what's happening. Also on GitHub, of course, devil, D-E-V-L, that's my nick over there. Haven't been, been doing much there that is publicly visible either for some time. One of the very many odd things that came out of my journeyman tour was that I started trying new things. Well, a long story short, that turned into becoming a horse owner and doing a lot of riding away from keyboard these days. So don't be too surprised if interspersed and intermingled with the technical blog post coming from my better half, who's also a programmer and also a horse owner, and myself uh, writing about our horses and how we are horsing around. And I'll make sure to get those links included in the show notes as well for people to just keep an eye on, maybe add it to their RSS feed reader, and make sure they can catch you when you do put out some new information. Neat. And if, if anyone has any questions or interested in either getting you know tips on, on how to, to kickstart their meetup group or getting into mob programming, and please feel free to reach out to me and I'll do whatever I can to get you going. And sounds good tips as well. So I'm sure you'll get people reaching out to you for that as well then. Fantastic. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Leonard, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure catching up with you, and it had been a while, so I wanted to make sure we talked and saw how things were going. But yes, very much enjoyed the talk today, and thank you for taking your time to join me today. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.